BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirkanish right here in the middle. This is the Smirkanish podcast for independent minds. Last Wednesday was a, a big day for revelations about the January 6th investigation. I, I clipped and saved the front page stories from the Washington Post and the New York Times. You'll remember that it was the Washington Post with a four person byline reported the following. The Justice Department is investigating President Donald Trump's actions as part of its criminal probe of efforts to overturn the 2020 election results, according to four people familiar with the matter. I think we already knew that. We certainly suspected that they were looking at Donald Trump himself. But I said at the time that the Post, it struck me that they were writing this with some degree of formality, as if they wanted to be able to look back and say, aha, this was the day that we published a four-person byline and told the world that the Justice Department is looking at Trump himself. The story was actually posted last Tuesday evening, which was the same night that Lester Holt interviewed Merrick Garland. Garland didn't have much to say, but the post was published in that same hour and then came out in the print edition. And then there was the New York Times last Wednesday, headline, Trump advisors knew electors would be bogus, This was Maggie Haberman and Luke Broadwater. The lead said previously undisclosed emails provide an inside look at the increasingly desperate and often slapdash efforts by advisors to President Donald J. Trump to reverse his election defeat in the weeks before the January 6th attack, including acknowledgments that a key element of their plan of dubious legality and lived up to its billing as fake. Further along in the story, they identified some of the lawyers who were involved in this. They talked about Boris Epstein. They talked about a guy named Mike Roman, who was director of the Election Day operations for Trump's campaign. And and it said this, Mr. Epstein and Mr. Roman, the email show, coordinated with others who played roles in advising Mr. Trump. Among them were the lawyers Jenna Ellis, Bruce Marks. Wait a minute, Bruce Marks. I know him. Gary Michael Brown, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the story said with regard to Bruce Marks, Mr. Marks in an email disputed that there was anything inappropriate or improper about his work. I do not believe there was anything fake or illegal about the alternate slates of delegates, and particularly Pennsylvania, he said. There was a history of alternate slates from Hawaii in 1960. Nothing was secret about this. They were provided to the National Archives, as I understand the procedure, and then it was up to Congress to decide what to do. 
Mr. Marks added, I had no involvement with Professor Eastman's advice regarding the vice president's role, which I only learned about after the fact, and I do not support. And I came on air that day and I said, I know Bruce Marks. I've known Bruce Marks for years. I was there when Bruce Marks was himself truly a victim of election fraud. I've got to get him in here to tell his story and put his current role in some context. And he is in studio today. So thank you for being here. Let's together tell that story. You know it far better than I. It's 1993. Your station in life was what? Uh, I had run for the state Senate in Pennsylvania in 1990. I uh, narrowly lost to an incumbent who didn't show up to work. And then in 1993, he passed away. And it was a, then there was going to be a special election. And it was very important for the Republicans because the governor was a Democrat. At the time, the Democrats controlled the state house. And if I won my election, the Republicans would take control of the state Senate, and then they would have a seat at the table. So you were running as a Republican in an urban district where the registration edge was against you, decidedly, right? It was about three to one uh, Democrat to Republican, but I had run in 1990 in a slightly different district. There was redistricting, but I had led the battle against forced busing in Philadelphia as an attorney in between. So I had some fairly good name recognition because of my legal accomplishment in that lawsuit. And you and Bruce, you were we were younger then. You know, you were you were a young guy hustling. I mean, I can remember you and Irene out there, the shoe leather knocking. I mean, truly knocking on doors and hustling. You were mentored by Arlen Specter. He had a, an incredible work ethic that I think you uh, adopted. And, and that's what gave you a shot in this election. Yeah, I went door to door and door to door to door. Uh, some of the area, frankly, in uh, North Philadelphia and Kensington, the, the Hispanic which area, which plays a big part in my story, some of the houses didn't even have doors uh, because of the nature of the of the area. It was it's a very difficult areas, you know, drug infested areas and so forth. So I I'm pretty sure that I was there in '93 on election night. If not, I'm mixing it up with '90. But bottom line is, when the machines are opened the night of your election, 1993. We're, we're, when you're only looking at the count from the machines, you're ahead. True? I'm, I'm the winner. I won on the machines, and it was a very critical point in the lawsuit which ensued. I won on the machines, the legal vote, by about 560 votes. Okay. And now come the absentee ballots, and what happens? Well, the story short starts a little bit before. About a week or so before the election, I ran into a Democrat councilman, Dan McElhatton, who had defeated my opponent in a primary. He said, Bruce... This is in the center city of Philadelphia. He said, Bruce, you better look out for the absentee ballots because he's going to try to cheat you like he cheated me. I said, well, Dan, thanks a lot. I don't know anything about it. And then we went to look at the, you know, the applications that were being filed in the city commissioner's office. And lo and behold, there were, you know, thousands of applications from areas of the city, particularly the Hispanic areas where a lot of the folks don't speak English, who never vote by absentee ballot. And at that time, you could only vote by absentee ballot if you had a cause. We didn't have regular mail-in voting. And this is a very poor area. Many of these people unemployed. You're the, wondering, how are they going to be out of the jurisdiction? Why do they need so many absentee ballots in this Hispanic area? Absolutely correct. Yeah, I, my, my audience has heard me, although this has changed, and frankly, this factors into your story later. 
but my audience has heard me bemoan the fact that for so many years Pennsylvania required you must be physically out of the jurisdiction if you're going to be an absentee uh, voter. So, or you could have a limitation if you're yeah, a disabled. senior, disabled, and right. so forth. Okay, That's so correct. the point is, like, you see a spike that in this poor neighborhood, a lot of people are voting absentee. We see Mount Everest. It's right. more than a spike. And so we start to investigate it before the election. And I have Hispanic, Hispanic people speaking Spanish, mainly from, you know, Puerto Ricans, coming back to me saying, these people we've talked to, they don't know anything about applications that were filed in their names. And I'm saying, come on, are you guys serious? They said, yeah. So what happened is my wife is a banker, okay? She's, it's Wells Fargo now, and we went to the bank, and because of that, we were able to get about $10,000 in cash, and the way that it worked then is if you want to challenge an absentee ballot, you have to pay a deposit because the ballots were open in the, in the precinct, in, in, in the division. And so we were able to, to at least get to some of the divisions to challenge the ballots before, before they were opened. In some places, the Democratic Committee wouldn't, wouldn't even physically let our people in. So we have the election. We learned that there's, you know, over 1,500 absentee ballots, and we try to challenge them. Uh, first, we go to keep them from being opened. Every judge that I get in the, in, in the state court system in Philadelphia is a former Democrat ward leader. I'm not making this up. And we got no headway. And then they illegally opened the ballots, and they illegally declared my opponent the winner, even though I Based on the absentee ballots. Based on the absentee ballots, of which you got like 95%, even though since we had a challenge, they technically, legally, they couldn't certify him as the winner. They had to wait till the legal process was over. So we ended up going to federal court because the inquirer was also covering this because it was really look like an election fraud. Yeah. And we learned that it's the city commissioners, the Democrats that control the election that are part of this process. And they're taking these absentee ballot applications and then they're turning around and they're giving the ballots to the people, the campaign workers and the Democratic committee people who are bringing them in. This is illegal. In Pennsylvania, they could only give the ballot, obviously for anti-fraud reasons, to either the voter, uh, him or herself, or they have to mail them. But instead, it was coming right through city committee. Right through the, let, the, let me, the city Let me ask committee. something about the, the nature of the fraud here. Back in 1993, is it that the Hispanic voters weren't themselves even filling out the ballot, or was someone taking advantage of them and saying, hey, let me help you. You don't have to show up. You can vote right here and now, and then obviously steering them to check the box of your opponent. It was both. Uh, they had a bounty. The Democrats were paying a dollar per absentee ballot application. And then they would, they would get the application. In some cases, the committee people or the campaign workers would just go around the corner and vote. Right. Uh, I, I'm a lawyer. I actually handled some of the litigation. And I put a, one of the voters on the stand. And I said, Pedro, did you sign, did you sign the, the ballot? He said, no, I never signed it. So just to be clear, I said, did you ever touch it? He said, well, I don't know. I'm a mailman. I might have picked it out of the mail. Right. But so there was absolute complete fraud where people were signing other people's names and voting their ballots. And the other fraud was that they were bringing them the ballots, which they're not allowed to do, and they were voting by by absentee when they're not permitted. Okay, so an election that you believed you had won, all of a sudden your opponent is declared the victor. You can't get relief in the state system. I'm just trying to streamline this a sure. little bit. So you go to federal court. And you catch the eye of a federal judge named Clarence Newcomer, who was a no-bullshit guy. First case I ever tried, by the way, was in front of him a few years after your situation. Um, and he was tough. And he interceded. 
And now I'm really cutting to the chase. He proclaims you the winner. Absolutely. He, we had, he seats you. He, he, he removed, first, he removed my opponent because the evidence was that, you know, he had cheated. And then he, with, through experts, we had testimony. and We showed that 90 percent or so of the absentee ballots were fraudulent. And so he discounted them. And so based on that, given that I won on the machines, he declared me the victor and I got the seat. And, and I, I just have to convey to people it's been a number of years, but this was in Philadelphia at the time. This was the story. The Philadelphia Inquirer had an investigative journalist crew on it. They were covering it every day. I don't know if anybody ever won a, a Pulitzer, but they probably should have. But this was the talk of the town and ultimately you were seated in the state senate absolutely and also at the time they had tv camera in the federal court so all of this was on the news at night and they also did a documentary of it and so that was a really very important thing because the public could see through the testimony of the voters or the testimony of the campaign workers who took the fifth amendment what had happened okay so you then, that was a special election. You stand for election now. When it comes up the following year, you lose. I'm the only guy they want to win, beat. Right. They don't care about Rick Santorum. He becomes a senator. They don't care about Tom Ridge. Ed Rendell's working a phone bank against me, and I lose a couple by a couple hundred it's votes. It's true. Okay. But just an interesting thing there. When I run for re-election, one of my clients, Dan Tabus, has a fundraiser for me. He's in. He has a piece of property on the Delaware waterfront that he wants to option to who? Donald J. Trump. And Donald Trump came in for my reelection fundraiser. And according to Jeff Lord, because I told him about my story before he spoke, that's how he learned about election fraud and that bad things happen in Philadelphia. Okay, so your relationship with Trump actually begins in that era, not the not the not twenty sixteen, not twenty twenty, but then he came in and did an event for you. Because somehow he had learned of you being the victim of election fraud. That's correct. In 1994. This is the true origin of bad things happen in Philadelphia. According to Jeff Lord. Okay. This is a good break point. Bruce, now now have we convinced the audience, uh, TC, that, that, that we've got a local story of national significance? I, yes. I think so. I think so. No one is tuning out. Okay. So Bruce has done a great job so far in, in, in giving us that chapter. Wait until you hear what is, is next. I'll come back with my special guest in just a moment. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. 
The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Okay, Let's get back to it. Lawyer Bruce Marks is in studio with me. I've known Bruce for many, many years. I consider Bruce to be a friend of mine. Bruce was legitimately the victim of voter election fraud in Philadelphia in 1993. A federal judge overturned the outcome, the quote unquote outcome of his election and seated him in the state Senate. And yet today there are some who are calling for your law license because they say you are caught up in unsubstantiated allegations and assertions of voter fraud having to deal with former President Donald Trump. So you revealed before the break that you met the former president back in this era because he did an event for you after it was brought to his attention that you had been the victim of voter fraud. Bruce, I I should have asked, was anyone successfully prosecuted in your case? Yeah, there there were a dozen people, lower-level people, who pled guilty, but they weren't sentenced to time. And as a result, they didn't cooperate, and so they were never able able to take it all the way up to the top, to, to the mastermind who was behind this, who actually turned out to be former state senator, in my opinion, Vince Fumo, who was later convicted of a whole lot of other federal crimes you know, it served, I think, six or seven years in prison. He was never charged with anything connected with the election that you're here he discussing. Was he was not. So uh, the relationship with Trump, was it was it a one and done or was it the start of something that was then ongoing? Tell me about that. Well, it really wasn't ongoing, but uh, I have a law office in Moscow. I studied Russian at Penn. Boy, now people are hearing that. and They're going to go batshit like, aha. Yeah. And so I, I, I met uh, Donald Trump Jr. in Moscow. It was in touch with him, uh, but nothing ever materialized. I didn't do any real estate work for them. Wait and a minute, wait, wait. Is that your? Is that Siri talking to you? Can you turn that off? Oh, sorry. That's all right. God damn it. Okay, so you're this. Go go back. <laughs> Trump comes in and does an event for you, and the next thing I hear is I practice law in Moscow. I practiced law in Moscow. So you can imagine, you know, the conspiracy the- the theories that later came out of that. I met Donald Trump Jr., was in touch with him. And then in 2016, the Democrat National Committee and the State Committee brought a totally fabricated suit against the Trump campaign in six different states, including Pennsylvania, saying that they were going to somehow, you know, interfere with minority voting, suppress minority voting in urban areas, including Philadelphia. And I represented the Trump campaign in, in that 2016. Case, in 2016, and we won it. Uh, I mean, you can't get Republican workers to even go in some of these areas of Philadelphia because of what they're like. And so then in the 2020 campaign, it was frustrating to me, but Vice President uh, Pence's guy was the chief counsel at the Trump campaign, and I couldn't get my foot in the door. In other I, words, you wanted to be involved, but ultimately had no role. I had no role. And then after the election, 
and it was a decision was made to replace him with Rudy Giuliani, who I knew. Uh, and I got a call from the mayor, I think it was the Friday after the election, asking me if I'd come in and represent the campaign. And I was, on, I was in JFK. I was on my way to Ukraine to meet with one of my clients. I said, I, I can, but you'll have to wait till I come back. He says, well, we're going to bring in somebody else. And then they eventually brought me in maybe about a week later. And that's how I got involved. Okay, so what what specifically was your role for the Trump campaign in the aftermath of the 2020 election? Well, I did two things. One is I didn't uh, I I was not a counsel of record in in the proceeding in the federal court. I didn't have time to investigate it. And I'm not going to sign my name to a complaint if I haven't done the investigations. Uh, But what I was willing to do was I went to a hearing with Mayor Giuliani, and the judge ended up asking me a question about Mark V. Stinson, because he wanted to understand why the Trump campaign had what's called standing, why they had a right to bring the case. Just as a candidate, I had a right to bring my own case. So I did that. The other thing is, and it's, you know, it's in the New York Times article. Uh, Unfortunately, somebody leaked, you know, privileged emails. But I quickly realized that, you know, I forget what the, uh, the attorney general said, but it was a clown show. And they had people all over the country, some good, some bad, but nobody was focused on some of the serious constitutional issues that had to do with how the elections were conducted in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in other states. In other words, you sent an email where you were critical of the way the Trump campaign or representatives were were handling the media and you said to them you're not the media they were being criticized in the media for how they were handling the litigation right on december 23rd mr marx wrote you folks are getting killed in the media on litigation strategy even on fox and among conservatives your point being what that you thought that there was something legitimate they could have been saying Yes, they did. And I was, as a result of that, my role was expanded to advise on their Supreme Court strategy. And so one of the things that I did from Pennsylvania, I worked for Professor Eastman, and we filed a petition in the Supreme Court saying that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, in a series of three decisions, had improperly changed the law in the middle of the election. Bush v. Gore, if, if nothing else, stands for the proposition that the, can't, the courts cannot change the law in the middle of the presidential election. Right. Bruce, I see, and I guess this is really the crux of the matter, I see a big difference between uh, a bounty, people being paid a dollar to go out and, and phony up an absentee vote for you, versus the worst allegation I've heard of anything in Pennsylvania. Like, wherein lies, and maybe you don't believe there was fraud. I don't know. I shouldn't be so presumptuous. But I'll ask it that way. Do you think that the same type of fraud of which you were clearly victim was perpetrated against the Trump campaign in Pennsylvania in 2020? The same type of fraud, to my knowledge, was not perpetrated. But let's not forget, in Bush v. Gore, that 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 that. That, that case concerned constitutional issues. And what happened in Pennsylvania is the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, which is elected five to two Democrat to Republican, they absolutely knew that the strategy of the Biden campaign was to use mail-in votes. They changed the law. They said you couldn't challenge the absentee ballots, but you could. The statute said you could. They said you couldn't challenge the signatures, but you could. The statute said you could. When they were counting the mail-in ballots, they wouldn't let us within a hundred feet of the ballots in the convention center. So we couldn't even see whether the ballots had the right signatures, whether they had addresses, whether they had dates. And that was improper because there were, I don't know, about a million four absent mail ballots that were counted for Biden, and almost none of them were disallowed. But typically in Pennsylvania, when you had people voting by mail, 
who knew how to do it, let alone people voting for the first time, about 5% of those ballots are invalid. I hear everything you say. I think you also have to factor in it was the midst of a pandemic, and maybe you would say only for cover. Maybe that's your argument. Only for cover did they allow an extension of the ballot time period, but it was a pandemic. Well, first of all, And you had more people who were not going to show up at a polling place. Well, actually, I went to over 30 polling places on Election Day. Okay, Mike, the Republican voters showed up at the polling places. Well, because they hadn't voted by absentee, because Donald Trump had told them to stay away from that. Let, let me get to fake. But in any case, but, 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 but we thought we had constitutional issues, and that's what I focused on in Pennsylvania. Okay, and, and, you, and you still obviously believe that to be the case. I do. So there's a group out there now where uh, they call themselves the uh, 65 Project, named after the 65 lawsuits filed in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election, where you tell me they've targeted you, they want your law license, or they want you sanctioned, or both? You know, it's a political stunt. They filed uh, ethics complaints in Pennsylvania against nine of the lawyers who represented the Donald Trump campaign, including me, even though I never entered an appearance. I merely answered a judge's question, you know, at the hearing. And they're saying that we, you know, lent our law licenses to this fraudulent scheme to overturn the election. And frankly, it's outrageous. We were doing our job as lawyers, and uh, uh, and it's done for publicity and to raise money for this group. The way in Pennsylvania, if you file an ethics complaint, you give it to the to, to you know to, to to the grievance committee. It's not made public because they want to you know pr- protect reputations of lawyers from you know false claims. If they say that it has enough merit to be investigated, then it's made public. And these were the same day they filed it, they gave it to the media. And that's how I learned about it. What role have you had in the so-called fake elector scheme? Well, I don't agree that they're fake electors. And the answer to your question is I really had no role. I was aware of it. I was certainly aware in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania uh, that there was a alternate slate of electors. And there was a reason for it. This is, it was done in Pennsylvania, it was done in Wisconsin, it was done in other states where there were pending challenges against the election. And there's parts of, you know, uh, if you follow the Constitution, if you follow the, you know, the the Electoral Counting Act, that you need to have a a slate of electors pending by the time that you get to January 6th when the Congress considers it. But listen, this is, you know, there there may be a a crazy lawyer from Arizona who said these were fake electors. Yeah, I I was going to read you the quote. Okay, well, good for him. You know, he, he, so you've got a lot of lawyers representing the Trump campaign. This guy was a you could read the quote, but I, I thought you were—I thought you were going to say to me, "Well, I want to distinguish Pennsylvania from Arizona because in Pennsylvania, the electors that were allowing their names to be put forth or cooperating to do so had a caveat, which said if a court should determine." that Donald Trump won Pennsylvania, then here we are, his electors. Well, there's no doubt it was done better in Pennsylvania than it was done in some of the other states. Uh, And and the Pennsylvania procedure was better. But no, and I'll tell you why, Mike. Where do you think we got this idea of doing this? You're going to probably tell me Hawaii and JFK. Uh, That was in 1960, and I'm going to tell you that, but I'm going to tell you, how did we remember it? The way they remembered this, okay, and that we looked at it was on November 4th, okay, of two, of 2020, a guy named Van Jones, you've heard of him, right? Sure. At Larry Lessig uh, uh, from Harvard. Prof- at yep. Harvard, yep. who I went to the University of Cambridge with in England. They did an op-ed piece on CNN on November 4th, and they advised the Biden campaign to do the exactly the same thing. That because of the time that it might take to, to, to count votes and the fact that you might not have a final 
non-appealable judicial decision in Pennsylvania that the Biden campaign should do a, a, okay. a slate. So, so let me let me let me give my sort of wrap up and, and you can respond sure. to it from the sidelines. Here's how it looks to me. It looks to me like Bruce Marks, a guy who I've known for a long time and, and whose judgment I respect and who was clearly the victim of election fraud is caught up in or or having his name being used to put forth fake assertions of election fraud, because I do not believe that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him and that these fake electors seem like they were a means of browbeating Mike Pence. Here you go. Here's a slate from Michigan. Here's a slate from Arizona. Here are the names from Pennsylvania. All you have to do, Mike Pence, is embrace this slate and not the slate that represented the lawful outcome of the election. I mean, I'm, I'm worried as I read the New York Times, you know, about the impact this has on you professionally and reputationally. Well, uh, I think two things are being conflated. Tell me. And I, and, and I think that I did what I did was exactly right. I gave legal advice. Okay. Uh, number one, I think you have to dis- distinguish between uh, the decision. And I wasn't really directly involved, but I think it was right to have electors meet like happened in Pennsylvania, happened in Wisconsin, where you had pending challenges so that you had a slate of electors that if you ended up winning the cases, that then you would then you would, then Donald Trump would be able to win. That is a completely different issue than browbeating Pence, okay, and telling him that he should reject counts. On January 4 in uh, that meeting. That, that is totally a different issue, and I think it, I mean, lawyers give advice. I think that was just atrocious advice and wrong, and I commend the vice president for standing up and defending the Constitution and recognizing that it wasn't within his power to reject the electors. Okay, I have, I have a naive question then for Bruce Marks. Why were why why do you necessarily need to change the electors? In other words, let's say that in Pennsylvania, here's a slate of electors and uh, Donald Trump is the is victorious or wait a minute. It turns out now we've done a recount. It's Joe Biden. Why must the electors necessarily change those individuals? Can't the individuals whom are the electors represent whatever the outcome was? No, because they get to vote. So if you have a slate of Biden electors, the Congress can't tell them to, but aren't to you vote all, for Trump. But aren't you all honoring what the vote was of the, the popular vote in Pennsylvania? Like, who cares who the electors are? Well, no, the, it's the electors who vote, Mike. So that's why if you you have to have your own slate of electors. The electors are, are, are either proposed by Biden in this election. They're proposed by Trump. So if Congress says, you know, uh, we're going to overturn based on a, a court case, for example, we're not going to recognize the Biden electors. Who else? Then who else is going to be there? There have to be other people for them to recognize. And that was what this alternate slate was about for the Trump people. And that was what and that's what happened with Kennedy in 1960. This is the Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. 
Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Hey, Bruce Marks has been gracious in staying long past I had invited him. Um, I want to get to this before you leave, Bruce. The January 6th committee. So have they subpoenaed you? Are you playing any role whatsoever in that investigation? No, they haven't subpoenaed me. I, I hope they don't subpoena me because then I would you know, have expense to deal with it. But I wasn't involved in the advice that was given to the, you know, Trump about the vice president. Absolutely wasn't involved in that. I wasn't actually involved in, you know, the organization of the appointment of the electors. I was just aware that it was happening. And I wasn't, you know, there on January 6th. It had nothing to do with, you know, the, you know, the, the mob mentality that took place and the riots that occurred. So I don't think that there'd be much I mean, that your, I could your offer. role as you've described it here your role was very limited to that of an informal what advisor someone with experience in this process who provided counsel about I what? did two things one Go is ahead. I attended a hearing with with Mayor Giuliani in Williamsport right because of my background and knowledge of Mark but he these, was the lawyer of record he was the lawyer of record I was not the lawyer of record because I hadn't had time to investigate it and I wouldn't take a case without doing it that was number one and then number two I was the constitutional lawyer I was the guy who tried to figure out constitutional issues whether they were right or wrong based on Bush v. Gore and I filed a cert petition in front of the Supreme Court from Pennsylvania I also was involved in advising lawyers from Wisconsin and maybe one other state on f- filing their petitions, and that was it. When when you filed that those petitions, you did so on behalf of of the who, Trump campaign of the Trump campaign. Absolutely. Okay, so you represented the Trump campaign in that regard. Absolutely, but not with regard to the Pennsylvania electors. Uh, that is correct. Hmm. Where's this going? Where's it going for who? For you. Well, I hope it's you know not going anywhere. I there's a disciplinary complaint against me. I don't like it. We'll see what happens. If it's if it's unsuccessful, I intend to sue for defamation and abusive process. I think it was outrageous that they would file that against me. So that's number one. And number two, in terms of you know the, the uh, January sixth investigation, uh, that's going to be up to the Justice Department if it, to determine you know what they're going to do. I was surprised. Final thought. I promise. I was surprised that the Times didn't tell your story within the reporting last week. I mean, that that was the thing that floored me. TC can tell you that I came in here that day and I read from the report and I said, this is a fascinating story, but 
they're missing something. You got to know about Bruce Marks. Yeah, I think that they should have done that, and they should have. They also should have indicated that what my role was, because it was public, was filing something in the Supreme Court. I just happened to be, you know, on some emails with some people, but they were the ones who were involved in the elect, the alternate electoral electoral thing, uh, not me. And of course, they never mentioned that the way one of the ways we got the idea was from Van Jones and Professor Lessig. Bruce, thanks for coming in today. Come back uh, if if the thing develops. I know that you hope it doesn't develop, but I appreciate your willingness to come and to tell it. So thank you. Thank you, Mike. Great to see you, Bruce Marks, ladies and gentlemen. Of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.